Okay, hi guys and welcome. We're back and today we're doing the book of Ezekiel. <clears throat> right. So, uh, the book of Ezekiel, if you've read it before, you will know there's a lot of dreams, there's a lot of visions, strange things happening. There's also a lot of material that we have to get through because it's quite a big book. So I won't give much of an introduction. Let's get straight into it and try to gain context and understanding as we go. So because we're going to do it like that, please feel free to stop me if there's any questions, any comments, any disagreements. Um, please don't, don't hesitate to shout. All right. So the book of Ezekiel, what was happening at the time in the land? So I've prepared a few visual aids. I don't know if it's going to be helpful. I'll also I'll also share this document with you guys afterwards if you want to go through it maybe. <clears throat> but just to give you a quick uh, breakdown, there was... So remember, when we looked at the historical books, there was... We saw that the nation of Israel was one land, and then after the reign of King Solomon, there was a split. There was a split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Right. The northern kingdom is called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. So this map is quite cool because if you notice, all of these are the names of the prophets. And it basically shows you where the prophets uh, mainly operated, right? So you can see there's the city of Jerusalem there and that's where Malachi, Ze uh, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, Isaiah um, were primarily based. There's Jeremiah as well. Um, etc etc so you can just go through that this will help us with with context as we go through the rest of the prophets um, and also just prepared a little timeline because timelines are quite important when it comes to the prophets you know um, to gain understanding of what's happening in the land right so i won't go i won't i won't spend too much time on what happened uh, on what date um, i think like uh, you guys can always just refer to this and hopefully that'll you know uh, give you some context and understanding and guide you in all of that. So what was happening at the time is, at the time of Ezekiel, is the Babylonian Empire is on the rise, right? They had defeated the Syrians and the Egyptian empires, and they took over the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And so the Babylonian Empire takes control of the land of Israel. Once they had control, they started to export uh, the Jewish people from Israel, and took them back to Babylon. Um, so they did this twice, right? And you can see in this map over here, in this map over here, um, there's, there's Jerusalem over there, and you can see the green highlighted part. That's whole, the whole Babylonian empire. So that's where they kind of operated. They took over that whole region, um, so including the land of Judah. And so they would take the Jews, and they took them all the way, if you follow this red line, to Babylon, and that's where the, the, the Jews were in exile, right? Um, so they, once they had control, they started to export the Jewish people from Israel, and they took them back to Babylon. They did this twice, so there were two great deportations. The Babylonians took the Israelites back to Babylon to be exiles, uh, basically so that they can indoctrinate them and turn them into Babylonians themselves. In the first deportation in the year 605 BC, the prophet Daniel is taken along. Um, and when we look at Daniel next week, we'll get more details around that. And you'll notice how it's interesting that the Babylonians would always take the best people in the society that they conquered. 
Um, and you'll see when we read Daniel that your, your Daniel, Shadrach, Meshachs are the top academics, you know, the intellectuals, the noblemen of the country. After this first deportation, years later in 596 BC, there's a second deportation, right? They take another group of um, Israelites. And this is the one where Ezekiel is taken as an exile to Babylon as well, right? So that's the quick background to this book. We won't spend too much time on that. And then um, the book structure, you can basically break it up into four, right? Four parts. Chapters one to three is the calling and commission of Ezekiel. Chapter four to 24 are the oracles or the, the, the prophecies of judgment against Jerusalem and Judah, which is God's people. And chapters 25 to 32 are the oracles of judgment against the nations. And then chapters 33 to the end are the promise of blessing and restoration, right? Redemption will come. So throughout this book, we will see a prophetic cycle that you see in all the prophetic books, right? You will see, we saw this happen in Isaiah and you'll see it happen in Jeremiah. There's peace between God and God's people, the Israelites. And then sadly, the people become faithless and they do so in two ways. They are faithless towards God in their worship as they turn to worship idols and pagan gods. And secondly, they grow faithless towards one another. They no longer love their neighbor. They lie, they oppress and mistreat the poor and are sexually immoral. And then God will get angry with the people. God will get angry with the people. Uh, this is because God is a jealous God and because he cares for the downtrodden and the oppressed. And then finally, God's righteous anger is poured out on the people but God is also merciful and he offers hope and redemption to those who would repent, right? That is the prophetic cycle. This is what we will see in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, it's the same story on repeat for, for God's people, the Israelites, right? Uh, the people sin and rebel against God. They turn their back on him and turn to idols and false gods. God sends a prophet to warn them about the destructive path that they're on. In this case, it's Ezekiel. And then they are told, this is why you're going to be judged, Israel, because of your sin. And then you will have oracles of judgment against the nations um, where the Lord tells the pagan nations, right, that they won't get away with their evil and sin either. All of humanity falls under the authority and judgment of God, even those who are outside of his covenant community. And then we will see there's hope given at the end. Um, and all the prophetic books pretty much follow that, that same structure. So let's have a look at the first chapter. So if you have your Bibles, just turn with me to chapter 1 of Ezekiel. So chapter 1, verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chiba Canal. So this is Ezekiel speaking and he says he is in the, the I think it's pronounced Kabar, the Kabar Canal. He's among the exiles in Babylon. So the Kabar Canal is in Babylon. And then he says, The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of the king Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of Chaldeans, of the Chaldeans, by the Kabar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So, so he says... Um, it was the fifth year of the exile of the king Jehoiakim. That lets us know which time in history that Ezekiel is writing. But in the first verse, he speaks of the 30th year in the fourth month of the fifth day of the month. What is this a reference to? This is probably Ezekiel st stating his age. 
So remember, as a profession, he is a priest. Right? Ezekiel is a priest by profession. And they were allowed to start ministry at, at the age of 30. So it seems Ezekiel is saying these things that are happening in the book occurred when he was 30 years old as he's beginning his ministry. The prophet Jeremiah and Jesus also began their ministries at age 30. Right? Uh, Ezekiel begins his ministry as a priest and he deals with the leaders at the time. So the leaders um, and the, the, the higher ups in that society, uh, the priests were like the shepherds and the pastors of the time in the Jewish nation. And it's important to remember that Ezekiel is in Babylon because it can be confusing when you read this book. You may think that he's time traveling. You wonder, OK, what's going on? You know, uh, there are times when he speaks as if he's in Jerusalem uh, or sometimes. But we thought he was in Babylon. So what's going on? What will happen is the Lord will take him in the spirit back to Jerusalem and will show him things in the temple and in Jerusalem. So in chapter one, he has his first vision. And this is a very strange vision. So have a look at verse four. In verse four, he sees these living creatures and they have an unusual appearance of human likeness. But each had four faces and each had four wings and their legs were straight. Their feet were unusual. And the passage carries on like that. Right, it carries on describing what Ezekiel sees. So go with me to verse 12. Verse 12 says, And each went straight forward. Wherever the Spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And then verse 15, Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures one for each of the four of them. So he sees these four wheels. And then verse 16, As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. And he continues and says there were, there were eyes on the rims of these wheels. In verse 22, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out over their heads. And in verse 26, And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. So, Notice how, especially if you like pay attention to the language, in describing what he's seeing, Ezekiel starts from the bottom and moves up. As he moves up this image and this vision, his description becomes more and more vague, right? It's almost like he's not quite sure or he's, he's not able to see clearly what he's, what he's looking at. He was very detailed at first, but look at verse 27. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. So what is he seeing here exactly? Basically, what he's seeing is a throne. And there seems to be a person sitting on the throne. 
right? And underneath that, underneath that throne is all these strange creatures and wheels. So if you picture it in your mind, it seems to be a picture of a chariot, right? A chariot with a throne on top. And what this vision is symbolizing is the Lord and the glory of the Lord, right? And, and that the glory of the Lord can move, right? It is dynamic. This is important because what we're going to see, right, uh, um, if you think back, right, to what we know about the Jews, what were they saying about Jerusalem when the temple was still up and running? Remember when we went through the historical books, we talked about the temple and how the Jews had become superstitious about it, how uh, they were saying that they have the temple of the Lord and nothing will ever happen to the temple, right? The temple will never be destroyed. It will never be removed because God dwells there, right? It's God's temple. How can anything happen to it? Because uh, the very spirit, the very presence of the, the, the living God is in the temple, right? He's in the temple. His presence is in the temple. And so nothing can shake us. We are fine. We are secure. There is no need to worry. Don't listen to the prophets. Don't listen to Jeremiah or Isaiah. Don't listen to them who are telling us that's going, that there's going to be judgment. God will never leave his temple. He will never leave Jerusalem. And Ezekiel's vision begins with the sense that God's presence is mobile. He's not bound to a location like a temple or a building. And we'll see later on that he will leave the temple, right? The glory of his presence will leave the temple. So I think the strange vision has a rather simple meaning. It's, it's wheels and a throne and the presence of the Lord. And it's serving as a warning to the Jews who are not yet in exile, to the Jews who are still in Jerusalem, saying, listen, God is not bound by a building, right? God is not bound by a building. Uh, his presence will leave you. At the same time, it's also encouraging to the Jews who are in exile because the Lord can be with them, right? He can be with them there even though they're far away from the temple because you can imagine they're thinking, oh, We've been taken away from uh, the, our land. We're away from the temple. We cannot worship. God is not with us. We're all alone. But no, this is uh, a means to encourage them. And so in chapter 2, Ezekiel is called to be God's prophet. So if you go to chapter 2, you'll see um, he's told by the Lord that he's going to be uh, a prophet for him. And God tells him to not be afraid. In verse 6, the Lord says that the people... Right, His people are a rebellious house and they are not going to listen to you, Ezekiel. If they do, whether they do or whether they don't, it's irrelevant to you. Just tell them what I say. And in chapter 3, Ezekiel is told to be a watchman for the house of Israel. A watchman is a lookout for the city. Right, They stand on watch for any threats coming from outside the city and they warn the people of danger. So they would be on an elevated platform, always keeping watch, always keeping guard, making sure that the city and the, and the people in it are safe. If you're a watchman and you see an enemy approaching the city and you don't warn the people, you're responsible for what happens to them. You will have blood on your hands. But if you do warn the people of danger coming and they do nothing, right? you tell them danger's coming, an enemy is approaching and they don't get their weapons or they don't prepare, or if they ignore you, then you've done your duty. And God basically says that to Ezekiel. He says, I charge you to warn the people. And if you don't warn them, I'm going to hold you responsible. But if you do warn them and they don't listen, you'll be okay. The priests in the land were supposed to be the watchmen. 
they were supposed to warn the people against God's judgments for their actions and their lifestyles. And it's the same today, right? We have pastors, elders, ministers. You and I are supposed to preach the whole counsel of God to the people, right? Against the consequences of sin. We're supposed to warn people of sin and false teachings and God's judgment. Uh, Now, proclaiming God's word to people is not going to win you a popularity contest, right? So don't even enter it. And it's not fun or joyful to preach to unrepentant unless you, 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 you're a bit messed up, right? Because none of the prophets rejoice in the task that God has given them. When God gives them the task, when he calls them, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets actually dread the task that they have, right? They're often reluctant. They're like, Lord, please don't send me. But it has to be done. Uh, the false prophets... The false prophets in the land are popular because they say exactly what the people want to hear. They tell the people that good things will happen to them, uh, good things are coming your way, your best life now, uh, that they are amazing and that they have favor with God when it's actually the opposite. And it's the same thing you see in the New Testament. It's the same thing you see today. Second uh, Timothy 4 verse 3 says that people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. Uh, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own uh, passions. So people gather for themselves false teachers to suit their own wicked desires. Uh, It was the case at the time of the prophets. It was the case at the time of the apostles. And it's the case today. So we need people to go and speak the truth, right? Uh, We need to be the people who go out out and speak the truth. And so... Uh, God then says this in verse 26 of chapter 3, And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So the Lord makes Ezekiel mute. Ezekiel is not able to talk. The only time that uh, Ezekiel will be able to talk is when the Lord comes to him and says, say this, or thus says the Lord. So the only time Ezekiel will be able to talk is when he's speaking words from God. Any other time he's silent. Um, His tongue is only loosed, right? He's only allowed to speak freely when we get to chapter 33, when the Lord begins to give words of hope, right? Hope of restoration, freedom and liberation. So in total, Ezekiel was mute for seven and a half years, um, roughly that amount of time. So we get to chapter four and Ezekiel is given signs. He's given signs and things that he must act out with his body. And um, it says in verse four, so chapter four, verse four, then lie on your side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. So he has to lie on his side and... I don't know if, if that is permanently, you know, like all the time, or maybe it's just during the day. Um, but he has to bear the punishment, whatever it looked like, right? 
um, and, and the Lord gives him several other things that he has to act out. And it's very interesting that since he's a priest, he has to bear the punishment of his people, which of course points us to Christ. Right? Jesus is the great high priest and Jesus bears the punishment of his people. So in a way, Ezekiel points to Christ in that manner. Um, and then in chapter 8, if you go to chapter 8 quickly. In chapter 8, Ezekiel is, so here he's transported back to the temple in, in Jerusalem. We don't have uh, times to read through it in detail, but what happens is he goes to Jerusalem and into the temple area and he digs through the walls and different sections in the temple area and through that he's able to see all these abominations being done by the people and he sees the leaders worshipping false gods within the temple in Jerusalem. So verse 8 says, Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw. So the Jews have idols and drawings depicting false gods. Uh, the women are weeping over some goddess named Tammuz, who was a god of fertility. Um, they're weeping as part of their worship of this idol. Uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, this, uh, this, this, this goddess was supposed to die and resurrect uh, throughout the year because uh, I think like as the season went, she would just like die and resurrect. And this is the part where they, they cry and she has um, died. And this is why they are weeping. Um, and then they pray for her resurrection and then she comes back apparently. And it's all these crazy forms of worship that are happening in the temple in Jerusalem. So it's almost the, the highest form of, you know, idolatry. Uh, committed against God. And so God's judgment is perfectly just. And it's very important to remember that. People always say that the God of the Old Testament is so horrible and mean. How could you worship a God like that? And you find all these famous atheists, your Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens, they're famous about ranting about God, you know, saying that he's a tyrant, he's a murderer, he's genocidal, and all of these things. But that is not true. And we can see here that God's judgment is always just, right? God is not a God who delights in uh, punishing the wicked, but he is a just, just God. And whenever he brings judgment, it's because the people are full of abominations. And so in chapter 9, in one of Ezekiel's visions, there are seven angels sent to kill the idolaters, all the unfaithful men and women. One of the angels from that group of seven is assigned the role of protecting the faithful people in the land. The angel is described as a man who goes to put a mark on those who are weeping or crying at the abominations of Israel. So it's those who love the Lord, right? And they see what's happening in the land and they're weeping, they're crying because, Lord, uh, there's idolatry going on, there's all these abominations going on. Um, they are concerned at the sin that they are seeing in the nation. So uh, verse 4 of chapter 9 and the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan all over the abominations that are committed. So uh, the rest of the, of the people are to be killed, that are not marked. 
with uh, this mark on their foreheads. The mark on the forehead, what does that remind you of? Revelation, right? It brings to mind the book of Revelation. And Revelation has the mark of the beast. But it also has the mark of the Lord. I think people forget that. You know, uh, the mark of the beast is on the forehead and uh, the forehands. And the mark of the Lord is also on the forehead and the forehands. And we'll get into these signs and symbols and all this apocalyptic language in Scripture. Uh, next week, we're looking at the book of Daniel. And Ezekiel, Daniel, and Revelations, if you read them, you know, you'll know you'll, you'll pick up a lot of things. You'll be like, oh, wait, I remember reading this here or this here. Because uh, they, uh, Ezekiel has a lot of apocalyptic uh, genre or apocalyptic language in it. Uh, Daniel, especially, I think the last eight chapters of Daniel is just like apocalyptic literature. And that ties in very well with Revelation. So if you want to find out more about that, come next week and you will learn more about you know, the end times and all that. Um, so we can't really go deep into that. But it's important to note that um, amidst all of this that's happening, right, um, um, the, the people that are, are doing abominations, the Lord sends the angels to mark, uh, to kill the people and to mark his people, to mark the remnant. Um, amongst all of that, in chapter 10, note that, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, right? It leaves the temple, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. So again, uh, no resting or having confidence in our buildings and our traditions and our customs. These are not God, right? That's how we end up becoming superstitious, just like the Jews were at this time, right? They believe that they're right with God because we have the temple. And we should not fall into the trap of saying, look, we are Baptists, we are Reformed Baptists, or we Anglican, or, you know, we have a hundred years of heritage, and, you know, we have these things. If there is no vibrant fear of the Lord, then we have nothing, and the Lord will move away. Even in Revelation, you know, uh, uh, Jesus talks about removing uh, his witness from the church. Um, so that's a very real thing. Um, Moving on, chapter 16. So if you turn to chapter 16 with me quickly. So in chapter 16, um, you have a very beautiful passage. It's a beautiful passage, but very sad as well. In chapter 16, the Lord speaks about the birth of the nation of Israel, about his people. He speaks about how he found her and that she was a baby basically thrown out into the wilderness. Uh, she was still in her wounds and in her, in her own blood, but the Lord found her and washed her and took care of her. And then Israel grew up and she became beautiful. And he covered her with clothing and God says he gave her jewelry, right? Even a nose ring. So nose rings are godly. And he says in verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished, because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any and on any passerby, your your beauty became his. And so, the nation of Israel becomes a prostitute, and she starts going after the Syrians and the Egyptians and all the other nations. And God's so God's people turn to pursue gods of foreign nations. The nation of Israel. Yes, they are. 
the nation of Israel becomes uh, a prostitute. And so when you read this, Ezekiel will use very harsh language, right? Uh, very harsh language. So I, I actually encourage you to read through it. Um, if I was to say some of this, the, the, the language that, you know, the Lord uses here, some of you will blush. Um, but it's, it's just, it's very graphic. It's very, um, you know, out there. But I encourage you to read it in your own time because Ezekiel will, will use very harsh language when describing what she does as a prostitute. And again, it's important to remember that that is what sin is. It's spiritual adultery against the Lord. And God says, I have done all of this for you. I found you when you were helpless and alone. I took care of you as you grew up. I provided for you and made you beautiful. But you used your gifts and abilities to commit adultery and abominations. You became worse than a prostitute. So God says that about his people. Look at verse 33 of chapter 16. Verse 33, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. So he's saying that you're a prostitute, but you actually paid others to come and sleep with you. Such is the severe nature of your adultery. Right? So it's it's... It's, it's paints such a, a graphic picture of how much Israel loved their sin. You know, um, the people loved uh, their sin and their idolatry so much that it's comparable to a prostitute who's willing to pay the client um, to sleep with him. So, okay, having to move on, if you go to chapter 24, if we turn to chapter 24, in chapter 24, there's the, the siege of Jerusalem. There was no Twitter, Facebook, or stories or status updates in those days. So you couldn't just open up an app and see, oh, this is what is happening in Jerusalem, right? Like, it's not like with us. Um, instead, here, it's the Lord who tells them by the Spirit that Jerusalem is being besieged and that they are being judged. And then it says in verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind, your, bind on your turban and put your, shoes, put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the, so I spoke to the people in the morning, and at the evening my wife died, and on the next morning... I did as I was commanded. So I'm just updating that. I did as I was commanded. So Ezekiel is now about 35 years old, and God tells him that his wife will die. And he says that he must not mourn, right? And so she dies, and he complies. And he doesn't mourn as God had commanded him to do so. It's one of those actions God has commanded him to perform for the Israelites. And it's quite heavy stuff, right? It's uh, on the one hand, it's a reminder that serving the Lord is heavy and difficult. He will sometimes call us to do difficult things in our lives out of service and obedience to him. But it's also important to remember that 
because it's all of grace and because God gave his only son, he can ask you and I for anything. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right. And I think I think uh, it's what was Tim Keller who said, if it's all of grace, right, if our relationship with God is all of grace, then we need to realize that God can ask anything of us, right? If it's a transactional relationship between us and God, that can't be the case. God is not an employer, right? We don't, he doesn't, we don't have an employer-employee relationship. God owns everything about us. Uh, He owns it whether you believe it or not, and that is the truth. And as a believer, you are blood-bought, The Christian is the one who gladly submits to God in his sovereignty and doesn't try to fight against this fact so that we can gladly say, my time is yours, my money is yours, my body is yours, my family is yours, everything is yours. And that is why Jesus will say such radical statements like, unless you hate your mother and your father and your siblings, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. Unless you are willing to forsake everything and let the dead bury the dead, you are not worthy of the kingdom. Here the Lord says to Ezekiel, I'm going to take your wife. And it hurt him, right? Because Ezekiel loved his wife dearly. Uh, in verse 15, it says, she was the delight of his eyes. So it's not like Ezekiel was in a, uh, in a bad marriage or, you know, his wife was like, or he was like, yay, finally I'm freed of this person. No, she was the delight of his eyes. And yet the Lord says, I'm going to take her and you must not cry or mourn. Right, what you go, what you go through, Ezekiel, is going to be a lesson to the children of Israel. And what is the lesson God is teaching the Israelites? Well, their delight, the delight of their eyes, was the temple. The temple is what they loved. It's very similar to what was happening in the New Testament when you read the Gospels. So remember, in the Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even the, the, even the disciples, they were obsessed with the temple and the whole religious system. And what did Jesus say? Not one stone will be left upon the other, right? Referring to the temple. In other words, the temple will be destroyed. And the disciples missed it, right? All of them missed it. They didn't realize what they were saying or what he was saying. Um, They, again, are not focused on the Lord and honoring him. They are too busy looking at institutions and making idols of them. And that's what the Lord is showing through Ezekiel's wife. He's saying, I'm going to take away the temple, but do not mourn. Right, because it's not worth mourning over if you think about it. Because you have the greater temple, you have the greater reality, which is Christ. So um, that's what's going on over there. And then, looking at chapters, I'm going to go to chapters twenty-five to thirty-two. Right, so I'm just going to give a, a, a very brief overview summary of that. Um, so, in chapters twenty-five to thirty-two. These are prophecies or oracles of judgment against the nations. And when you look at it in your Bibles, I'm sure you'll see as you go through those chapters, you'll say the oracles against such and such a place, the oracles against such and such a place, right? And one thing you can take away from this, right, especially this portion as a believer, is that all men are under God's judgment. God's standards are not only for his people, right? God's moral standards are authoritative over the Gentile nations as well, over the unbelievers as well. Often people, I'm sure you've heard this, often people will say, I don't believe in the Bible or I'm not a Christian, so I'm not going to hell, right? How can God hold me accountable for my sins when I don't even believe in him? I don't care, your God doesn't exist, right? 
it's almost like uh, a baby playing hide and seek. If you close your eyes, then um, I disappear. The problem goes away. But that's not the case. What matters, doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, what matters is if what you believe is true or not. And scripture is true when it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, that's Romans 3 verse 23. It says all have sinned, not all God's people. It's all people. And we all fail to meet the standard God has set for mankind. And so we are all worthy of receiving just judgment of God for our sins. And so you will see that God will bring judgment against these foreign pagan nations for their idolatry and what they have done to his people, the nation of Israel. So in chapter 25, uh, you'll see there's the prophecy against Ammon and Moab and Seir and Edom and Philistia, all these foreign nations, right, who probably, if you bring it to today's times, also thought, we don't care about your God, he doesn't exist, or, you know, our God is stronger than that God, I believe in the Muslim God, I believe in the Hindu God, etc., etc. And then in chapter 26, there's a prophecy or an oracle against the nation of Tyre. And this oracle goes from chapter 26 to 28. And let's go to chapter 28. Um, so just turn to chapter 28 with me. So chapter 28 is the prophecy against the prince of Tyre. And this is a very significant oracle because if you look at from verse 11, it's a lament against the king of Tyre. Now, Tyre and Sidon were a Phoenician empire, right? And this empire was incredibly wealthy because they owned and they controlled the seas. So, you know, during those times... Um, I mean, there were no planes, you know, everything. If you're going to trade, you're going to trade by ship. And so if you had control over the seas, you, you become very wealthy because um, you, you, you get to, you monopolize all those trade routes. And so the significant part of this, uh, of this passage um, is when you read it, especially from verse 12, it seems to point beyond, beyond just a human king. Right. This some of these things cannot just be the actual king of Tyre. So let's read together. Verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Till, till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So it certainly speaks about the king of Tyre, but I think you guys would agree that it points beyond that, right? Who was created perfect and was in the Garden of Eden and was the anointed cherub or angel? This is a reference to Satan. And it speaks of his beauty and his power and how he was judged because of sin found in him, specifically the sin of pride. So Satan was very beautiful 
And so he became proud and turned from wisdom for the sake of his splendor, right? Um, so there's that. That's a very uh, illuminating chapter. And then we get to chapter 23. Sorry, 33. We get to chapter 33. And this is where Ezekiel's mouth is finally loosed, right? So remember, uh, we saw in chapter 3 or chapter 4, the Lord said that his mouth was going to be bound and he'd only be able to speak when God gave him words to speak. But now the message has changed mainly from one of judgment to restoration and hope. And so uh, Ezekiel is able to speak again. You know, he's, he has full freedom of his mouth. Verse 11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? So it's always important to keep that in the back of your mind as we look at the judgment of God. This is not a sadistic pleasure. God would rather that men and women repented and put their trust in him. He says, he said he, in, in chapter 18 of Ezekiel, he says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Right? So God is a God who desires to see people turn from their sinful ways and repent. Um, again, going against the whole message or the whole notion that the God of the Old Testament is a horrible, uh, uh, wicked, sadistic uh, God. Right? It's far from, from, far from it. And the book of Ezekiel proves that. If you go to chapter 34, so chapter 34, this chapter is a prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds here include the priests and the kings and the prophets. So think of it as the leaders, right? Both uh, the judicial leaders, the leaders in government and the spiritual leaders of the land. This is a judgment against uh, mainly the spiritual leaders because what have they been doing? So look at verse 2 of chapter 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. And so the Lord says he's going to judge them. Again, if you, you don't need a lot of contextualization to make it, uh, to see the relevance to today in our time. Um, you can read that passage and see this, what's happening in Ezekiel's time, happening today. It's church leaders and elders fleecing the flock, mistreating God's people, taking their money, abusing them. And it's very interesting. Notice how, uh, you, I don't know if you've noticed how often when these guys are, or these women are confronted, they become very aggressive. They become like what it says in verse 4, with, with force and harshness, you have ruled them, right? Uh, if you confront them, do not speak against the Lord's anointed, uh, do not... You know, do not uh, touch not the Lord's anointed. They are very harsh when it comes to certain things, especially when they need 
to raise finance raise finances for a new house or uh, a new fleet of luxury brand cars they will say they will say unless you give it's going to go bad for you in life and they will warn their congregations not to speak against uh, against them warning them not to criticize them and all sorts of things like that and it's easy to throw stones at false teachers and people like that um, it's easy to to throw stones at your big name false teachers because it's very clear. It's easy for us to see where they've gone wrong, right? You can clearly see their sinful ways. Of course, many people don't, right? Many people don't see where they are misleading them, which is why they are so popular. But it's also a warning to us who do have sound doctrine and theology. It's a warning about how we care for the flock, for God's people. Even though there's judgment, um, even, so so even though there's judgment coming to uh, these 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 leaders and uh, the people mis- mistreating and misleading uh, the sheep, there is hope given in verse 11. So verse 11 says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out, seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scat- scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. And then verse 23, if you go down to verse 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. The good news is there will come a shepherd who is perfect, who will find the lost sheep, and that is the Lord Jesus. Right? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus also said, I am. Right? I am, full stop. He is God. And he also said, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd who does not lose his sheep. So we are his sheep, and that is important to understand. Uh, Even if you are in a bad church and your theology is, is not correct or your life is not right, if you belong to Christ, if you are saved, then you are still a sheep. God is gracious with us, right? We are always growing, coming to know the Lord better and more through the work of the Holy Spirit and through His Word, even if it is slow. Uh, it, I, I think it's not often that God changes us drastically in a short space of time, right? I think you've been walk, if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you'll notice that the process of sanctification is slow. It's difficult. Um um, so it's it's rare that you know God just like drastically changes us and now we, you know, uh, a super great Christian. But then God also doesn't just save us and then leave us. He will be causing you to grow, and this will involve Him exposing all the sinful areas of your heart in your life. Uh, if you noticed, whenever you first get saved, most people think. Oh, you know, now I need to stop uh, uh, sleeping around. I need to stop getting drunk and I need to stop swearing. And, you know, like it's, it's all these rather external things and it's good, right? You start to win in those areas in your life, right? I'm no longer going to watch pornography. I'm no, no longer going to uh, mistreat these people. And, you know, you, you, you start to win and you all good. And you think, okay, this Christian walk is easy. But then God will expose an area that is sin that you didn't even know was there, right? God exposes the ugliness of our hearts to us. And when you start looking into your heart, you will see that there's a lot of pride and conceit and unbelief. There's actually much worse going inside than the external things you did, which were wrong. Um, 
and that's 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 the reality of it you know that's the reality of it uh the longer you walk with the lord the more you spend time as a christian you realize or you you see more and more of your flaws you see more and more of your sin or the depths of your sin and it it, it can be very overwhelming sometimes it can crush you you know but there's always grace in christ um and because of this if someone accuses you christian of being unloving and unkind and a hypocrite you must tell them that they are wrong because you're far worse than that right our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful but god does the work the holy spirit exposes to you all your flaws and your weaknesses he will expose your theology he will expose your knowledge of him you might think that you 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 know god you know who he is um you've read all these books you've read all these you've watched all these sermons and whatever and then as time goes by you're like sure i actually realized that i didn't know my bible at all and you see how wrong you were about him or that you didn't really know who he is and you didn't realize what he has done for you or you never quite understood the gospel and all of this is to say that god doesn't just devastate you when you get converted by showing you all that is wrong with you right that would be overwhelming because you and i would be destroyed if we were shown right then and there what is wrong with us instead he slowly and graciously works in our hearts to expose these things to us it's sanctification and what shines brightest is that we have a hope right for all the ugly stains in our hearts and our lives we have the promise that christ has shed his blood to remove the stain of my sin and your sin and to present us without blemish to the father when we stand before him um further he's a good shepherd and he will not lose his sheep so even in your walk when you, uh maybe you fa- you fall into sin or you just feel like lord i am not growing i'm not becoming more like christ it's so long and so difficult remember he's a good shepherd he will not lose his sheep you are secured in him because of him right not because you are repenting enough or you are living christian enough and all that stuff at the end of the day we can hope we can have our hope in Christ because he's the one who first of all saved us and so he will keep us faithful until the end and then uh just closing uh going to chapters 33 to 48 uh we have the promise of restoration and a hope chapter 36 we have the promise of God to put his spirit within us so that's in verse 26 of chapter 36 verse 26 says and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes my statutes and be careful to obey my rules right so notice how it's god i will do this and i will do this and i will do this right in chapter 37 we have the hope of the resurrection and the promise of god to be with us verse 23 says they shall be my people and i will be their god right i will be their god and they will be my people really that's the main theme of the bible right it's i will be their god and they will be my people it was a case from genesis uh or from exodus and it's the case all the way through until revelation when we are in glory with the lord right we will be his people he will be our god and then from chapter 40 we have uh there's this if you read it it's Ezekiel's vision of a new temple and it continues to, to describe the temple and the details around it it speaks of the glory of the Lord filling the temple 
so there has been discussion about what this temple means and how it's going to work out, right? This relates to what is called eschatology. And what eschatology simply means is a study of the last thing. So from scripture, how we think, how we think things will come to an end. So we have Ezekiel prophesying an amazing temple. And if you read the description, it's really an amazing temple. It's huge. It's even called a city because the temple is the size of Jerusalem. So it's a city temple. It's massive. And what had happened is Solomon's temple, right, the original temple, had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And we will see that when we go through Jeremiah next week. And Ezekiel now says, don't worry, there's going to be another temple to come. An amazing temple. And we know eventually that the Israelites will go back to the land and rebuild the temple. But it's small and pathetic in comparison. It's tiny. And the people even cry because the temple that they rebuilt was so terrible. It was like, it's pathetic, right? So it can't be the one that Ezekiel was envisioning. So we're still looking for this city-sized temple. And there's really like two views on it. Some Christians who say that uh, this prophecy of the temple must be literally fulfilled, right? And they say that when... uh, getting to the whole pre-mill, post-mill, whatever. Just to summarize that view, it's that, uh, you know, Christ will come and reign on this earth and we will rebuild another temple, etc., etc. You You can speak to me afterwards about that. The other view is that this is an idealized temple. It's so amazing that it's not real. It's an idealized temple and it points to the new heavens and the new earth when we are dwelling with Christ. Uh, that's the view I hold on to because... Um, when we are with Christ, remember Revelation speaks of um, there will be a temple, right? A glorious, beautiful temple. And we're also told in Revelation that that is God's people, right? So it's God's people um, worshipping their God um, in all glory. Um, so, okay, we're going to have to leave it there. So are there any questions, any comments, any thoughts on the book of Ezekiel?